oppose this war, and now he and his country will bear the consequences. Pope paid a visit to the Russian embassy, attempting to mobilize his direct contacts with Vladimir Putin's political circles. Impose export controls and sanctions. We, the United States of America, stand with the Ukrainian people. This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. We explore the beliefs shaping our world, and this week we turn our attention to the war in Ukraine. As the Russian military crossed into the sovereign nation of Ukraine, presidents and prime ministers, religious leaders, and millions of people took to the streets across the world. In the course of a week, the geopolitical alliances and the global economy shifted dramatically. Among the currents in this story are reminders that war is hardest on the most marginalized. On the ground, stories of people finding themselves in desperate situations. Foreign exchange students, Ukrainians, children, the elderly, everyday people making that difficult decision whether now was the time to flee, to walk for hours, some for days, in search of refuge. At the time of this recording, the nation of 40 million has witnessed the exodus of nearly a million, according to the UN High Commission for Refugees. Later in the program, we'll hear from a church pastor in the small town of Svedlosk in central Ukraine. 20 years ago, Pastor Benjamin Morris came on a short mission trip. He went back to the States, graduated, and then decided to move to Ukraine, where he met his wife, started a family, and together they planted a church. In the face of war, he and his family are not leaving. But first, we take a look at the geopolitical forces influencing the crisis and how it's impacting religion in Ukraine and beyond with political scientist Dr. Oksana Shevnel, an associate professor at Tufts University. She's an expert in national identity in the post-communist region, from the process of nation and state building to religious politics and the challenges to democratization. Her analysis of the Russian-Ukraine conflict has been widely reported in recent weeks, especially her warning to the West to not underestimate the Russian leader's ambitions. Putin wants to destroy Ukraine. He wants to remake the world order, European order, security architecture, rights of countries to exist as separate entities. That's what it's all about. A little history. Ukraine is a nation roughly the size of Texas. It's the second largest country on the continent after Russia. It shares borders with Russia, Belarus, Poland, Hungary, Slovakia, Romania, and Moldova. Ukraine declared its independence from the USSR in August of 1991. At that time, Russian President Vladimir Putin was 39 years old. He was working as an external affairs officer for the mayor of St. Petersburg. Six years later, then-President Boris Yeltsin appointed Putin his prime minister, handpicking him as his successor. In 1999, when Yeltsin abruptly stepped down, Putin became president and has held a firm grip on his leadership for two decades. Bordering at the South, Ukraine has had several presidents and a complicated evolution, marked by internal battles between political factions and disputes over political alliances. In 2014, then-President Viktor Yanukovych rejected an opportunity to sign an agreement with the European Union. 
That triggered mass strikes and protests known as the Revolution of Dignity that ultimately led to Yanukovych being deposed from office. He was closely aligned with Mr. Putin. In the days after Yanukovych was removed, Russia proceeded to annex Crimea, an act many describe as the beginning of the Russian-Ukrainian War. The country then elected Petro Poroshenko, a businessman and a nationalist leader who took steps to establish a Ukrainian national identity that included supporting the creation of its own independent Ukrainian Orthodox Church, one not under the leadership of Moscow. Ukrainian national politics, though, remained divided over many issues, reflecting the struggle within, from security to economic stability to the rise of separatist groups in the East. Unable to maintain popular support, in 2019, Poroshenko lost to a political newcomer, Vladimir Zelensky. Elected at the age of 41, Zelensky became the first Jewish president of the young nation, Although home to many religious minorities, it is a nation where more than 70% identify with Orthodox Christianity. Until his election, Zelensky was best known as an actor and comedian. It's a skill that has enabled him to understand and effectively communicate with different audiences. Adept at using media like Instagram and Facebook to speak directly to the world. He has become a David to Putin's Goliath and galvanized international support from leaders across the European Union. To Dr. Oksana Shevnel, Ukraine's President Zelensky embodies the aspirations of a young country, not just his ability to inspire fellow citizens to stay and fight and defend against the invading Russian forces, but a new sense of national identity and a common purpose forged in large part because of Vladimir Putin. I spoke to her on Sunday, February 27th, mindful that events on the ground are rapidly changing. The West must know this. Ukrainians are fighting. I have family in Ukraine. I have friends in Ukraine. I talked to my childhood friend yesterday who is at a dacha, which is like, you know, summer kind of cottage community outside of Kiev, about 10 minutes from the nearby military airport. There is shelling. They're scared. They have kids. They have all their grandparents. But they organized in their village. They go on daily patrols. They are in touch with the National Guard in their area. Men have went to the nearby military recruitment center. They received arms. My daughter's 15-year-old kids helped to put out um, fire from a Russian missile the other day. Ukrainians will fight. They will fight tooth and nail. And I think this is very important for the West to understand that. They, they're not expecting Westerners to come fight with them, but they are expecting any other support that can be offered. Oksana, welcome to Inspired uh, Production of Interfaith Voices. I know this is an incredibly difficult time. I also understand that you are inundated with media requests for context and insight on trying to make sense of what is unfolding right now and trying to get an understanding of both the history of Ukraine and perhaps what the broader intentions of President Vladimir Putin are at this time. Yes, thank you. Um, well, the broader intentions of Putin, I think, are very clear, as it was never about NATO expansion. Ukraine was not in NATO, was not going to get into NATO. There was no consensus in NATO to accept Ukraine. Uh, but what really Putin is set on is to destroy Ukrainian sovereignty. He does not consider Ukraine to be a separate country, as he has written and talked on many occasions. He believes this mythology from the periods of Tsarist and Soviet empire, that Ukrainians and Russians are somehow one people, 
and essentially independent sovereign Ukraine is unacceptable to him. Unfortunately, the tragedy of it is that he seems to believe his own delusions that Ukrainians are really longing to be liberated from quote-unquote Nazi rule, as he calls Ukrainian government with Jewish president at the helm, and the Russians would be welcome as liberators. What we are seeing now in the ground that Ukrainians are resisting very stiffly, so Russian plans for quick takeover and people welcoming Russian soldiers have fallen through, but at already tremendous cost of life, and I'm afraid the worst is yet to come. As you described this grim period, and of course, neither of us know what the future week is going to hold in terms of decisions, you are well aware that there has been this dominant narrative that has been put forward that this is all about NATO. And as you mentioned, describing the pretext for invading as some sort of attempt to squelch the rise of Nazism in Ukraine. Can you give a little bit of the historical context of where that might come from? And I'm thinking specifically the decommunization laws that passed in 2015. Let's talk a little bit about decommunization laws. So Ukraine had very complicated uh, history, as you know, many of your listeners probably know. The country that's today's Ukraine has been ruled by different countries over different periods of time. And especially during Second World War period, there was, especially in Western Ukraine, who had wanted to have independent Ukraine that did not exist, was crushed by the Bolshevik army after a period of short-lived independence after the Bolshevik revolution, treated the first Soviet occupation as occupation in 1939. And then when the Germans came in 1941, some Ukrainians welcomed it as a potential way, to, as a, essentially a liberation from the Soviet rule and a chance to establish separate independent states. Now, of course, that didn't pan out. And Ukrainian forces, some of them collaborated with the Nazis, including in the destruction of the Jewish community. And then they fought both the Nazi and the Soviet forces well into the 1950s in Western Ukraine. Now, from the Soviet point of view, of course, these forces, Ukrainians fighting the Soviet army, were clearly the enemy and there was no way to sort of see these groups in any positive light or, or the, their act of fighting the Soviet state. Once Ukraine became independent, that became a more complicated question. Who were these people? Who were these Ukrainians who were fighting the Soviet rule? On the one hand, they maybe were not such positive people, because again, especially given the collaboration with the Nazis and participation in the Holocaust of some of these groups. On the other hand, they fought for independent Ukraine. So in Ukraine, there has been domestic debate, public debate about how to sort of reconcile, you know, history, how to think about this period, how to assess it. The decommunization law that basically said that uh, these groups who fought for Ukrainian state, including the groups who for a period of time participated with the, the Germans, that they are veterans and at the same time as the Soviet veterans are. Right? So they're veterans, they're fighters for Ukraine, they're essentially the good guys. Was it that simple? No. And this is why many scholars who study it, historians, social scientists, basically said that that law in a way, sort of switched the Soviet paradigm. When the Soviet paradigm treated anybody who fought the Soviet state as an enemy, this decommunization law basically said anybody who fought for Ukraine is a good guy. Was that problematic? Yes, there were calls for certain amendments to the law. But this is sort of domestic political processes, domestic political debate. This is something countries who had complex history have wrestled with their complicated past. Is this justification? to say that this is some sort of Nazism and the country needs to be invaded. So I think these things have to be kept in context. This was something that Ukrainian society had to wrestle with, had to work through. It wasn't done perfectly. It was an ongoing process. And the fact that decommunization law changed Soviet view of history, that by itself, I don't think is problematic, because why should Ukraine 
keep all Soviet stereotypes, paradigms, approaches to history. This is what Putin wants. Any departure from the Soviet view becomes Nazism. And I think this is very dangerous because his concept of denazification, if uh, Russia were to prevail and occupy Ukraine, we are going to see massive repression against civil society. Basically, anybody from scholars to anti-corruption activists to civil society activists who questioned this sort of positive view of the Soviet past as Putin has embraced it. People who studied the killer famine, the Holodomor of the early 1930s that killed more than 3 million Ukrainians. In Ukraine, this has been considered, recognized as a genocide of the Ukrainian people. In the Soviet historiography, it was completely silenced. So basically, people who take a different view on the famine would be Nazis in Putin's interpretation. How do you describe the Putin narrative about Ukraine? Putin is engaging in retrospective nationalism. He is assigning to people, populations who lived over these territories centuries ago, certain identities, that they were always Russian and they were never Ukrainian. This is completely wrong, like I'm not even before we get to historical details, which city was there first and so forth. I mean, the way of thinking of nations as somehow some nations being natural, quote unquote, and some nations as being artificial, has been completely debunked. Nations are constructed through various political, social processes over the course of relatively recent history, there is no such thing as some sort of objectively existing nation that proceeded through history in its unchanged form. His claim that somehow everybody thought of themselves as, you know, Russian or one with Russia, it just has no basis in reality. Now, Ukrainian nation-building process has been very complicated. There was never political state that, you know, and again, state is a very important actor in forging common identities through education, through the you know, media, through print capitalism, all of these things. Ukrainians didn't have their own state. Yes, Kiev was there before Moscow, that is true. But the whole notion that some nation objectively existed through all this history and another nation is somehow artificial, as Putin claims, is just wrong. It's just a wrong way of looking at how nations developed historically in that part of the world or anywhere else. This retrospective nation identity building is also erasing the actual national identity building and the significant changes that have happened over the last 30 years. That was a very active period of nation building. And the irony of it is that Putin, you know, is essentially has become one of the best nation builders in Ukraine, as in like uniting people with common identity. Mm. Because up until 2014, when Russia first invaded and the next Crimea and started separatist conflict in Donbass, Ukraine, you know, was often described as sort of divided society. That, again, has to do with historical differences between Ukrainian regions. The West and increasingly kind of the center of Ukraine gravitated more towards the West and the center and in, in the East and the South, where more Russians and Russian speakers live, kind of gravitated more towards Russia. And Ukrainian politics showed that over the course of the 30 years. The parliament was always kind of divided. There was always political competition. And I would argue that even after pro-Russian President Yanukovych was driven out by street protests in 2014, that hadn't really changed. This electoral geography didn't go away, popular preferences didn't go away, sort of these divisions didn't go away. So in a way, if Putin did nothing in 2014, Russia could have continued to exert influence over Ukraine through the oligarchs, through the media, through the electoral politics that it did all the way since 1991. But of course, you know, Putin instead decided to invade, and that led to a sea change in Ukrainian public opinion. In February 2014, Putin moved to annex Crimea. That really changed identity in Ukraine. So it became more consolidated and more explicitly anti-Russian. So we see, you know, support for things such as integration with the EU as opposed to with the Russian-led customs union or Eurasian economic union. Support for NATO grew across the regions of Ukraine, including in historically pro-Russian regions. And this is a direct result of this first aggression in 2014. 
Now, and here we come with religious politics, because in Ukraine, many people who consider themselves to be religious, you know, majority is Orthodox. I think now we are again at the turning point for the Orthodox churches in Ukraine, because now that Putin started this war in Ukraine and the Russian patriarch blessed the efforts of the Russian soldiers, the Ukrainian patriarch who heads the Moscow-affiliated church is really facing kind of a dilemma, right? Does he follow with his patrons or, you know, his superior, for lack of a better word, in Moscow, or does he stand with the Ukrainian people? He already made a statement that he condemns um, the invasion. So that's actually a big change. And now there is this kind of dilemma that this church has. They have always tried to present themselves in Ukraine as a real Ukrainian church. And it's also important to keep in mind that among the believers themselves, it's the Western part of Ukraine that is much more religious. So the stronghold of the Moscow-affiliated church is actually in Western and Northern Ukraine. And the voters are not that different. So I think now is a real possibility, again, for these two churches to unite. That attempt to unite them failed in 2018. Instead, sort of a new church was formed, the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, recognized by the Ecumenical Patriarch. And this schism or split in Orthodoxy continued in Ukraine. And I think we are now looking at potential another turning point. Um, if these two churches were now again to unite, that would be yet another achievement, quote unquote, of Putin. Because again, it would be his aggression that bridged yet another division in Ukraine. Ukraine is a multi-confessional state, and there are people who identify with many different traditions. It's mentioned often in American media that Zelensky is Jewish, and it's often used as a way of dismissing the the accusations or the narrative that Putin is laying forward. I think, as you say, I mean, first of all, it means that sort of the accusation that somehow it's a Nazi government is like ludicrous. Nazi government headed by a Jew. I mean, like, you can't make this up, right? But I mean, as far as his identity, um, this, it's also important to keep in mind the Soviet experience and what it did to, you know, Jewish faith in particular. In the Soviet Union, being Jewish was essentially an ethnic identity as opposed to religious identity. Soviet Union kept... Um, people's ethnically ascribed identities in their passport, and Jew was one of them. So if you were, you know, written in your passport that you are Jew, that was your ethnic identity. Of course, as you said, because of the general kind of anti-church, anti-religious thrust of the communist rule, uh, that was difficult to practice any religion, especially Judaism. There was substantial anti-Semitism. There were sort of political suspicions also that the Jews maybe were not particularly loyal Soviet citizens. So I think Zelensky's family is typical in that way, that their Jewish faith was not really sort of active religious faith. So it was part, you know, of the identity, more ethnic than religious. Um, of course, there was a memory, you know, as he said, his family suffered in the Holocaust, participated in the Second World War, but he wasn't like attending a synagogue or anything like that. And he still, to, to my knowledge, he's not a practicing religious, you know, observant Jew, as we would say. Clearly, he won by landslide, so that's not, you know, an issue for Ukrainians that their president is Jewish. And the fact that he is not religious, it actually might be kind of politically not a bad thing because he cannot be, unlike, say, the previous president who very actively supported the new the formation of the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, independent from Moscow. The religious politics that you just mentioned in the United States, and I know you live here and you teach at Tufts University, you are well aware that in our American conversation about politics and understanding the different actors in civil society, religious voices play a role in that in the United States. What is the backstory of how faith has played out in Ukraine over the last 30 years, not in terms of the leadership, per se, of organizations and institutions, but how has it played out in the everyday conversations and the politics of how people come to opinions and points of view? I would say that it plays less of a role than it does in this country, sort of opinions of religious leaders, you know, where they would stand on issues and 
you know, their ability to influence their congregations one way or the other, I would say is less in Ukraine than it is here. And I think if we see that also in the polls, when people are asked, like, you know, is it important, like, to your, say, voting or any kind of political preference, what your priest would say, most people say that that's not how they make their decisions. Now, that said, I think uh, at the local level, this was sort of one of the elements of this uh, political battle between the two Orthodox churches. There were reports that in the politically charged the election campaign of 2004 in particular already, and also in 2013, but that hasn't really particularly influenced, again, voting preferences or um, voting actions by the Ukrainian citizens. Now, religion, of course, plays various other ways at the local level, creating community support, um, you know, spiritual support. Um, I think there has been oftentimes, especially if we're talking about smaller settlements, maybe when the church is the center of social activity as well, things such as, you know, helping soldiers at the front. Um, that could be organized. What is the infrastructure of the faith community in Ukraine? I think, I mean, I would expect that, of course, you know, active faith communities would step into humanitarian role as they, you know, tend to do everywhere. But again, because in Ukraine, the level of religiosity is not that high. And especially if we're talking about urban centers, um, there are many other ways for people to organize outside of the church. So if I were to make sort of a prediction, I would say that this kind of church-based or faith-based organizing would be more at local levels with the smaller communities. And I think it would be somewhat less prominent um, in the urban centers. Not to say that it wouldn't be important, right? Obviously, if people can go to church, if they can receive some help there for those people who are faithful, who are observant, that's an important source of support. But Ukrainian society has a history of organizing in various other non sort of non religious ways. And even if we think back to the protests of 2014, that was actually also, yes, the church at the time, Kiev Patriarchate, the schismatic quote unquote church, served as an important source of shelter for the protesters, the um, St. Michael's Monastery in central Kiev. But also the protesters hung a banner in the main square that said, Freedom is our religion. Mm. And I think that's very important because that sort of you know, goals that for people, yes, you know, they self-identify as Orthodox, but they're not, many of them are not practicing. Many of them, you know, sort of, it's a very fluid phase, right? People baptize their children, they get married in the church, they, you know, bury their relatives, but for many, that's sort of the extent of their religious participation. The main thing is freedom, and then people can be free to choose whatever they Mm -hmm. want, you know, they can believe what they want, they can practice the way they want or not practice, right? Do you see religious leaders on the global stage having influence or being able to shift public attitudes or even beliefs about the narrative to believe within Russia? Within Russia, I don't think so. I think in Russia, we have to look at what's going on within Russia. I mean, in Russia, the church and the state are in so quote unquote symphony. So the Orthodox Church in Russia, you know, is fully supporting Putin. Um, so I don't expect, um, you know, and again, since given the media control, sort of very high level of repression in the society. So I think what faith leaders do globally, I personally don't expect that to make much difference for what's happening within Russia. But that's not to say that it's not important, because I think what faith leaders do globally, as you said, like it may influence public opinion and sort of the attitudes um, of their own parishioners and faithful do they protest, right? Like how do they see this Russian aggression in Ukraine? I think what would be very interesting to see what the Orthodox churches, especially those that are some, in various ways affiliated with Moscow, uh, abroad, what do they do, right? Do they follow sort of Patriarch Kirill's line when he fully supports, you know, what's happened Putin's action? Would they take a different stand, right? Would say Russian diaspora abroad that goes, you know, people to go to go to these Russian Orthodox churches abroad. Would they see things differently from the way the 
conflict that is presented in Russia, the aggression, would they then maybe talk to their family members in Russia and tell them like, hey, look, you know, that's what they're telling you on state TV, but that's actually not what's going on. So I think we might see these sorts of maybe indirect effects, but I don't think there is a direct effect from what face leaders like the Pope and others would say or do, and then what the Russian government would do in response. As you're describing that, that soft power that faith leaders and faith communities can have in places where they shift and impact public opinion and thereby create sometimes a moral imperative for public leaders to take action. What would you like to see happen? What are you recommending to policy leaders and particularly those in Western Europe and in the United States? Well, what I would recommend, and I think this is sort of one of the dangers and that doesn't happen, that they really realize what it's all about, that Putin wants to destroy Ukraine. He wants to remake the world order, European order, security architecture, rights of countries to exist as separate entities. That's what it's all about. It's not about NATO. It is really the darkest hour of European history in many decades. So I would urge Western leaders to think ahead to really understand what this conflict is about and not to say, oh, well, maybe if we like, don't try to anger Russia too much, they'll back off. Like, no, they won't. I would just reemphasize that Putin, his delusion about Ukraine would be his undoing. The country wants to be free. The country has strong identity in no small part due to his previous aggressive action, and people are completely determined to not give in. Dr. Oksana Shevnil, an associate professor of political science at Tufts University and the author of Migration, Refugee Policy and State Building in Post-Communist Europe. Coming up after the break, we hear from faith leaders on responding to a humanitarian crisis. Stay with us. friends, I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show.
This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. This week, we're talking about the war in Ukraine, its impact on the national identity, and the way religious politics are unfolding. The Orthodox churches are not the only houses of worship. Over the last 20 years, a growing number of Protestant missions have traveled to Ukraine to evangelize and plant churches. 20 years ago, on a short-term mission trip, during his senior year at Cavalry Chapel Bible College in Indiana, Benjamin Morrison felt a calling. After graduation, he relocated and has been working as a pastor and church planter in Ukraine ever since. On Monday, February 28th, I spoke with him by Zoom from his church in a small town in central Ukraine. For Morrison, his calling is to help his community and raise awareness about what is really happening on the ground in the place he calls home. I was a young single guy fresh out of Bible college. My wife is Ukrainian. We met, got married here. Our kids were born here. This is home. For the last 20 years, he's witnessed the country evolve. And with greater religious freedom no longer under communist rule, Morrison set out to evangelize and invite Ukrainians to his faith. Starting um, that back then in the 90s, particularly, you know, really exploding in what we would call a time of revival, you know, has grown. The stats are that the evangelical church, I, I, I want to walk that term back immediately because unfortunately it's been politicized in the United States. Uh, so let me say the Protestant church has grown every year within Ukraine at the same time that the overall population is sort of slowly uh, waning. I was originally for the first three years after moving here in um, in another city, Dnipro, which is a city further to the east, one of the cities that's been getting bombed quite significantly. During our interview, he receives multiple calls. I'm getting a very important phone call. Can I pause you of for course, just half a minute? Of course. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Amberine, you still there? Yes, I'm still here. I, I apologize. That was a good friend of mine, a colleague, a pastor in Kiev, um, who actually is they're under heavy bombardment right now. Um, and they're, you know, also trying to discern is, is this the time when 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 it's right for them to stay or to leave? Mm. Um, you know, these these are very real questions that a lot of my good friends, um, ministers, brothers uh, here in this country are, are dealing with. Morrison lives in a small rural town. It's a river port and an industrial center with a hydroelectric station. In 2005, we moved to Tsvetlovotsk um, to plant uh, a church um, to minister to the people here. We're in a small town. Uh, it's only about 45,000 people. It's just on the west bank of the Dnieper River. We have not had any direct bombings on our city yet. We have had air raid warnings go off, at which point we all need to head to the bomb shelter. We also have a church building where we are meeting, ministering to people um, that has a basement level that sort of can also serve as, as a bomb shelter. The Cavalry Church Morrison leads is receiving those seeking refuge, internally displaced Ukrainians fleeing from the east. His wife and their two teenage children are working to support those arriving daily. We've had, you know, thousands of refugees coming in through our city now. So my kids are actually, um, they're my heroes as well as my wife. They are serving, they're doing what they can to help the refugees um, that are coming in, getting things ready, organizing. Honest truth, I, I could not be doing this if it were not for them and for their, their readiness to dig in and to do whatever needs done. Morrison finds strength in his faith and feels a calling. 
We believe that, that God has put us in this place at this particular time in order to, to serve these many, many people who need help. There's lots of people uh, reaching out to me saying, you know, how can we help? Uh, we have some partner churches in the U.S. that are sort of helping to organize. At the time of our conversation, concerns about access to food was not on his mind. But medical supplies are a source of concern. He's working with a network of friends and faith leaders to find conflict-free routes. No small feat, as the Russian military is encircling major cities. Different medical supplies are starting to get short already. Many people wounded dealing with that as well, so the need is greater than normal. People that are trying to seek ways to get supplies in without bringing them to any place of, of danger. That is um, quite a... Quite a puzzle in some ways, quite a labyrinth of just, you know, relationships. Again, we have been so encouraged, so just uh, strengthened by the people reaching out to us uh, saying, how can we help? Morrison is also using the phone and Internet while he has access to keep tabs on fellow pastors in cities currently under attack. I'm trying to keep in contact with those who have chosen to remain uh, to serve their people, their congregations, those who are hurting and in need. Another friend uh, who's a pastor in the eastern city of Kharkiv, uh, which is which is really taking um, very heavy hits right now, um, including two civilian targets. Um, you know, call and and but his he's he's there. Uh, he's remaining there, and rather than looking for ways to get out, he's actually looking for ways to get humanitarian aid in. Um, so I'm just you know I'm humbled by these guys. You know, we we draw courage from each other. Another person who inspires Morrison is the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, who's become a global figure. When the U.S. offered to evacuate uh, President Zelensky from Kiev, he said, I need ammunition, not a ride. Um, so, so I think that actually really, you know, uh, gives heart to those who are fighting for Ukraine. I think that really summarizes the, the mentality of a lot of people here, that this is our home and, and you know, we're going to defend it with all that we can. In contrast to President Zelensky, Morrison shares some concerns about former President Trump's comments about the invasions and President Putin. I don't claim to know anybody's internal thoughts, but it's concerning. It's deeply concerning. The U.S. is a major superpower. What happens there uh, reverberates across the world. We here are very thankful uh, that certain things that President Trump said when he was president and, and now that he is no longer, uh, that those are not in place. There was a period during his presidency, you know, kind of looking at dismantling NATO. Uh, I, I think now, you know, we've seen very clearly that NATO needs to be strengthened, not dismantled. I think, you know, uh, President Biden has been very clear about calling this what it is, you know, which is, you know, war and evil and an act of, act of aggression. Uh, and not just him, but really, you know, uh, most of the uh, international community, um, you know, very clear stances. Beyond the political leaders, Morrison appreciates the public rallies and protests. In Ukraine, those demonstrations across the globe mean a lot. We're very grateful for all of those speaking out. Um, you know, those who are trying to do what they can, mass public meetings. We certainly are, are encouraged to hear and to see these rallies. Uh, you know, in support of Ukraine. Morrison is quick to point out this aggression is not new. Since 2014, when Putin invaded and seized control of Crimea, Ukrainians have felt the war never ended. 
In the intervening years, a new national identity has emerged, and Ukrainians, even those who live in the East and have closer ties to Russia, are fighting back. People are ready to, you know, defend, defend the end, and we trust uh, that God is on the side of justice. Many people, uh, clergy, spiritual leaders of, of different stripes from different faiths and traditions step forward kind of together and say, you know, this, this is, uh, you know, a question of, of justice and human rights. Everybody, you know, within their faith traditions has maybe somewhat different understanding of those things, but I think it's fair to say that there's not a single... Uh, person here in Ukraine in his right mind uh, that thinks that what Putin is doing is somehow okay or good. This is evil. This is a tragedy. While he welcomes the prayers from across the world, he is asking people to take action. We do more than just pray. Um, so, you know, whether that's seeking ways to send aid, you know, sheltering refugees, uh, you know, speaking out, um, uh, you know, in in places to to those who actually have the authority to make the necessary decisions to influence the overall political will, or whether it be uh, to to cry out over the injustice in those countries that are unfortunately against us. Morrison, though, was quick to point out the sacrifices and courage of Russians challenging President Putin by protesting in the streets can mean, you know, jail time. It can mean, uh, you know, getting beaten by, by the, the, the uh, riot police there in Russia. They don't have that freedom. So it, it really is a bold stand. And we are so grateful for those who are making it. I've actually received a good deal of, you know, support, encouragement from pastors, even within Russia that are saying, you know, we're behind you. We're, we're praying for peace in Ukraine. We realize the cost for them to do more than that is high. Uh, it's it's not as easy as just saying to somebody in a Western nation, you know, go out for a rally one afternoon. Traditions, at least within the broad scope of Christianity, will be familiar with the Lord's Prayer. It says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. And that's that's our prayer, uh, you know, for Ukraine, that God's kingdom would, would show forth here that his his will would be done on our land. I'm Benjamin Morrison. I'm the planter and pastor of Calvary Chapel of Svitlovodsk in Ukraine. This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. When we come back, we hear from a Ukrainian-American Catholic pastor on the response and ways people are coming together. Stay with us. is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. This week, we're looking at the war in Ukraine. Shortly after talking to Benjamin Morrison, I headed downtown towards the nation's capital to meet with Father Hitchens at his church. I am pastor here of the Ukrainian Catholic National Shrine of the Holy Family in Washington, D.C. I was talking to my mother as I was driving down to the White House yesterday there for the support rally. And, you know, she was crying on the phone because she said she saw the videos of these fathers 
saying goodbye to their children because the children and you know the wives can get out of the country, but men 18 to 60 are being told to stay to defend the country. It might be the last time that they see their children and the children see their father. So again, the human impact of this senseless war. It was just a few hours before he was going to lead prayers at a vigil at the Holodomor Memorial in Washington, D.C. The vigil was organized by the Ukrainian-American Congressional Caucus. We met in a room in the church often used by children to observe the service rites and rituals from behind a large glass window. That allowed them to see what's going on in the sanctuary while staying occupied with toys. Near my feet were preschool trucks, a reminder that this small community includes families of all ages. It was the first time I'd been to a Catholic church that felt more like an Eastern Orthodox church. We maintain all of the liturgical and spiritual and theological treasures, if for want of a better word, of the East and you know, following the Byzantine tradition of the Church of Constantinople, but we are Catholic. And like any Roman Catholic can come to church here and receive all the sacraments, the holy mysteries, just as I or any other Ukrainian Catholic can go across to the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception and receive all the sacraments in their church. In the foyer to my left, Pope Francis's picture hangs on the wall. Across from it, an aging but helpful poster explaining the relationship and unique traditions— how the rituals, liturgy, and art of this church are reminiscent of the Eastern Rites. And that includes an icon screen with panels set in front of the nave, on each door a different portrait. The images and iconography, Father Hitchens explains, are intended to be an encouragement for congregants, especially in difficult times. One of the doors is St. Stephen, and St. Stephen is the first martyr of the Christian church. And especially for Ukrainians, that is something that's very important because unfortunately throughout history, they've been subjected to some terrible horrors, whether it was from the Nazis or whether it was from the communist regime. And in 1932-1933, the Holodomor, which we call the man-made famine, where depending upon the sources you look at, some people say as many as 10 million people starved to death mm. in a year. And then the great persecution of our own Ukrainian Catholic Church that took place in the 1940s, where it was declared illegal. And so bishops were killed, others imprisoned, priests, religious. And in Ukraine itself, for years, the church operated underground. And the communist authorities knew that all the way through the late 1980s, the teachers were trained to ask them questions on Monday. So what did you do yesterday? Mm. And if one of the children slipped up and said, oh, I went to church or they celebrated Christmas or Easter, they were you know, punished, which was severe. I know one seminarian uh, that's a person studying for ordination to the priesthood shared with me that when he answered the wrong way, the teacher brought him up and slammed his uh, hand in the desk to punish him. And then his parents also paid the price for taking him to church. Ukrainians, unfortunately, have always endured a lot of suffering, and that's why we identify with the martyrs. Mm. 
Over the decades, like many houses of worship, this congregation has shrunk. The pandemic made in-person gathering challenging. Recently, the church resumed in-person services, one in English and one in Ukrainian. After the invasion began on February 21st, Ukrainian-Americans hosted vigils and protests across the country, many alongside houses of worship. The Ukrainian Catholic Shrine of the Holy Family in Washington is one of those places. This Sunday at our 9 o'clock service, when I opened the royal doors for the beginning of the liturgy, you would have thought it was Easter Sunday because we were full. Mm. And this church can officially seat 456 people. And the majority were not from our community. They were from the greater Washington community, where people who perhaps before may not have been able to find Ukraine on the map, they know people are suffering and are being persecuted. And it means so much to know that there is solidarity. I've had so many phone calls of people offering their mother-in-law suites, and they have a finished basement. We have an arsenal. It's not of bullets or rockets or missiles or bombs, but it's an arsenal of prayer, of fasting, of almsgiving, of doing good works. And that's following the teachings of Jesus Christ, caring about our neighbors, whoever they are, and doing our best in 25th chapter of Gospel of St. Matthew, when Jesus recounts the last judgment and talks about, I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was naked, I was sick, I was imprisoned, I was ill, and whatever you did to the least of my brethren, you did to me. That's what our mission is here, and especially here at our Ukrainian Catholic Church. The hopes are that this crisis will end and that its borders will remain intact and its people will be respected. The fears are that because of technology today, when this air raid sirens go off in the cities in Ukraine, and there are people of this parish that still have family members over there, they're getting real-time information. We've got to run to the bomb shelter. We did a baptism here on Saturday at the 9 a.m. liturgy, and the godmother could not be here because she's in Ukraine, and she actually joined us by way of her cell phone. She was present as godmother in the bomb shelter because where she lives in Ukraine, they're near a military target. The major archbishop of our church, whom we refer to as Patriarch Shatoslav Shevchuk, is there in the city of Kyiv, as are other bishops and other bishops in their diocese throughout Ukraine, Roman Catholic, Ukrainian Catholic, Orthodox. And then our church even had you know, said for our priests to not abandon their communities, be there as a presence of prayer, and to be there to hold their people up. Father Hitchens, a second-generation Ukrainian-American, also feels that responsibility. I've been doing my best to try to make sure that I'm present and that I'm with the people down there at the White House, down there at the Lincoln Memorial, down at the Holodomor Monument later this afternoon. You know, again, that represents the monument dedicated to the people who perished in the forced famine under Stalin of 1932 to 1933. Mm -hmm. It's being organized by the Congressional Ukrainian Caucus. It's an opportunity for the senators and Congress people to show their solidarity with the people of Ukraine and, you know, that we, we, we need their support. 
Father Robert Hitchens is the pastor of the Ukrainian Catholic National Shrine of the Holy Family in Washington, D.C. In addition to humanitarian and spiritual support, the political pressure and leadership of the United States government was unified by President Biden's first State of the Union. The day after I met with Father Hitchens, global audiences saw a United States government putting aside its domestic political divisions for a short while. Members of both chambers, Republicans and Democrats, wore yellow and blue ribbons, kerchiefs and scarves to visually convey support for Ukraine, along with a standing ovation for Ukraine's ambassador to America, Oksana Markarova. Let each of us, if you're able to stand, stand and send an unmistakable signal to the world of Ukraine. Thank you. She's bright, she's strong, she's resolved. That's all for this week's show. If you're interested in finding out more about our guests, head over to the episode page on our website at interfaithradio.org. While you're there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archive. You can find our podcast on Apple, Stitcher, or by searching Interfaith Voices in the podcaster of your choice. And while you're there, help us out by leaving a rating and review. It helps others find us. This week's episode was produced by myself and Kevin McCarthy. Thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, for her vision. Inspired as a production of Interfaith Voices, we rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. Before we go, a note about the global response to this humanitarian crisis. A growing number of concerns are being raised that there is a racialized dimension to the global response. As the world rallies behind Ukraine and imposes sanctions destabilizing the economy of Russia, there are growing voices raising concerns about race and ethnicity, contrasting the global response and actions to the plight of Syrians, Palestinians, Afghans, Ethiopians, South Sudanese, and Rohingya, among others. And in some corners, opposition to the war is deeply rooted in anti-war convictions. In an upcoming episode, we'll be exploring these issues and more. If you subscribe to our podcast, you'll receive a special conversation with Associated Press religion reporter Peter Smith, who provides a explainer on religion in Ukraine. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Wherever you are, I hope you are safe, I hope you are well, and that you stay connected. I'll see you next week.